Uh, Turn with me in your copy of God's Word to Acts chapter 16. Uh, Some of you are wondering what on earth. That's awfully random. Uh, You've been going through Genesis. You got through uh, the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11 and ended up the next week in Acts 16. That seems to violate everything we stand for. Okay, well, it's true we normally preach through books uh, of the Bible. We'll normally take a book and work our way through it. Uh, that way, we're not subject to uh, whatever I like that week, or whatever I'm frustrated by that week, or whatever is going on in my head that week, or whichever one of y'all I want to pick on that week. Uh, we're subject instead, all of us, uh, to what God's Word has to say. Uh, I think I said early on, I wasn't sure whether we would go all the way through Genesis or stop at 11 and then come back later. Well, we stopped at 11 and we're coming back later. Um, We actually are going to start a series in Philippians. Uh, But uh, the core group that became first pres of Philippi is in Acts 16. So it seems reasonable to back up about 10 years from Philippians 1 to Acts 16. Uh, and take a look at the core group that would become First Presbyterian Church of Philippi. Uh, Acts 16, beginning in verse 6, let me ask that you stand, if you're able, for the reading of God's Word. Beginning in verse 6, And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the Word in Asia. And when they had come up to Mysia, Uh, They attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So, passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days, and on the Sabbath day we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out of her that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, 
these men are Jews and they're disturbing our city. The advocate, uh, they advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them, and suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. And then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. And then he brought them up into his house and set food before them, and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he believed in God. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray together. We pray, O Holy Spirit, that you would be at work in us. Unstop our ears. Soften our hearts, loosen our tongues, that we might hear, understand, love, and obey your word. Through Christ we ask it. Amen. You may be seated. One of the things that uh, frequently strikes me about uh, Grace Covenant Church about planting a church in Athens, Alabama, is this. But for God's work, if God were not at work in your lives, in our lives, in the life of Grace Covenant, in the city of Athens, many of us wouldn't know each other. And and even still, many of us might not spend much time together. It's entirely possible that some of us wouldn't even like each other, but for God being at work in our lives. We wouldn't, we wouldn't know each other. We wouldn't be worshiping together. Our backgrounds are different. Our experiences are different. Our preferences are different. Our ages are different. But the one thing that is the same is the gospel and that we all share and know and love. And with that gospel, those differences sort of fade. They sort of pale. They they begin to fade into the background just a bit. Well, the church in Philippi is just like that. You You have... something in common with this New Testament church, this this background in which 
the core group, the initial members of First Pres and Philippi, would not have known each other, and they certainly would not have, have worshipped together. And so we see here in Acts 16, the core group that would become First Pres in Philippi. I keep saying First Pres, that's next week's sermon. They're Presbyterian, trust me on that. Um, notice the missionaries. Uh, the, first of all, just, just to give you the context, just so you have a sense of, of who's involved in this mission trip, in this church planting endeavor. Uh, at the end of chapter 15, Paul and Barnabas were sent with a letter from the Jerusalem Council to carry that through uh, the region of Galatia and uh, those things. Paul and Barnabas have a disagreement and they separate. They're, they can't agree on whether or not to take John Mark on their mission trip, whether he should continue on through uh, their journey. Barnabas wants John Mark to go. Paul does not. So they separate. Barnabas and John Mark go one way. Paul grabs Silas to come with him. And Paul and Silas uh, continue on uh, what, what is known as Paul's second missionary journey. But then you notice when Acts 16 begins, uh, a third member of their group uh, comes along. They find in uh, Derby, Lystra, they find Timothy, and they grab Timothy, and Timothy joins the group as well. But then I also need you to notice there's actually a fourth man involved in this mission trip. You'll notice as you read Acts at home, maybe you're reading through Acts at home privately, maybe you're uh, reading through Acts as a family, if you pay attention, you'll notice the personal pronouns change. They change from third person to first person. They change from they to we. And that change happens uh, right here in Acts 16 verse 9. Luke, writing the book of Acts, begins to say, we, at the end of verse 10, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Somewhere it appears in Troas, Luke joins this mission trip. So it's those four men, Paul and Silas and Timothy and Luke, making this trip to Philippi, to Macedonia, this northern region of Greece, to proclaim the gospel. You're familiar as well. It's, it was Paul's practice whenever he entered a new city to go to the synagogue. He always started in the synagogue. The gospel was for the Jew first and then for the Gentile. He always went to the synagogue and met there first. There's no synagogue in Philippi. There's no mention of him attending the synagogue. Uh, they didn't have the, the required ten men to form a synagogue. Couldn't find ten male Jews in the entire city of Philippi to form a synagogue. And so Paul instead goes down to the river to pray. And now, oh brother, where art thou? Is playing in your head. There, the missionaries join this 
prayer group meeting every Sabbath day alongside the river about a mile outside of town. It's predominantly women. It may be only women. The the passage only tells us that there are women there. And these missionaries join the, the prayer meeting on the Sabbath. In fact, they make it a habit. It becomes their practice every Sabbath day to join these women in prayer alongside the river. The first convert, the first member of First Pres in Philippi is a lady named Lydia. She's from a city called Thyatira. It's in Asia. If you, if you notice the passage, Paul actually wanted to go to Asia. As they were making their journey westward, he really wanted to turn right. He really wanted to go north. He really wanted to go northeast. He really wanted to head into to modern-day Turkey, to Asia Minor, and was forbidden by the Spirit from doing so. And he gets to Philippi, and his first convert is from Asia. She's a, a wealthy woman. Uh, she is, uh, has some means. She has a, a large enough house that she would invite these four men to come and stay and, and with her, her household. Uh, she's a seller of purple goods. The dye came from a, a shellfish and you got basically a drop from each mollusk, shellfish, whatever. It took a lot of money to, to have enough purple dye to dye anything purple. She's wealthy. The, the, the picture there is that purple being this color of royalty is, is here she is, this single woman, apparently there's never a mention of a husband or a, a man in the house of, of any kind, this single woman who has money to spare, who has money at hand, a businesswoman running this, this business as she's making and selling purple goods. But she's also, verse 14, a worshiper of God. She knows Jewish teaching. She's familiar with the Old Testament. She's made God her own God. She's a proselyte, you might say. She's, she's not fully devout. There's no, again, there's no synagogue. She's not in the synagogue each and every Sabbath day hearing the law and the prophets read. She's, she's not getting that benefit. But she knows enough to say, that's, that's my God. That's my hope. That's my trust. She hears Paul preaching the good news of Christ. And she comes to faith in Jesus. She's converted there by the riverside. We aren't told much about her reaction. I mean, perhaps some of you would can, can look back on your own conversion experience and think to yourself, I remember bawling my eyes out. Some of you may think back and go, well, I mean, I was raised in the church and I'm not really sure I remember a time when I didn't know Christ as my Savior. You don't really have much of a reaction or a response. We have none of that recorded for us. All we are told is that she 
heard the gospel, embraced Christ, and was baptized. This Lydia, you can imagine, she knew the Old Testament. She had she was a worshiper of God. She understood enough. Paul most likely traced the Old Testament and said, now, this is the kind of Messiah that the, the people of the Old Testament were looking for. And as he did that, he would say, and here's Jesus satisfying that demand. Here's Jesus fulfilling that requirement. Here's how Jesus satisfies what, what the Old Testament is looking for in a Redeemer. He would have connected the dots for her. Not just the dots of the Old Testament, but the key line connecting the Old Testament to Christ Himself. Lydia, this, this Lydia, this woman, an unlikely convert, that's not what you and I would expect, I don't think, as we read through the Old Testament. We don't expect this this wealthy Asian woman to be the first convert in Greek, Philippi, she becomes the first member of the core group of First Presbyterian Church in Philippi. There's a second member of the church as well, of the core group as well. And if you were to put Lydia with her wealth and um, her background on one end of the spectrum. The second member of this core group comes from the other end of the spectrum. There's a, a slave girl in the city. She's possessed by a demon. She makes her owners a great fortune. They brought her owners, she brought her owners gain, verse 16, by fortune telling. People would pay them to have her tell their future. And here's this demon possessed slave girl is going around the city, making money for her masters, telling the future. And she passes by Paul and his crew as they're on their way out to the river one day. And you can almost picture her turning around and following them. Now, there's a part of you, there's, there's a part of you, that thinks if somebody followed us around Athens and said, these men are servants of the Most High God, or women, who proclaim to you the way of salvation. There's a, there's a part of you that thinks if somebody started doing that, Grace Covenant Church would double in size in a week. There's a part of you that thinks that actually might be helpful because then people would know, you know, we're not weird, that Presbyterians aren't goofy. That baptizing babies isn't nuts. I mean, if this person was following us around, these men are... Could you imagine? You walk into Publix. These men are 
servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. You go to get your hair cut and whatever else you have done to it. These women and men are servants of the Most High God and who proclaim to you the way of salvation. You stop to get gas. These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. You're annoyed just with me doing that three times. You're already going, Jeff, I get the picture. Paul was annoyed with her. Paul, verse 18, is greatly annoyed that she's following them around everywhere they went. You go to your kid's baseball game. These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. Frustrating, isn't it? And so Paul, annoyed with her, Keep in mind that the city knows this girl. They know who she is. They know what she does. They know that she makes her master's money by telling the future, by telling people's fortunes. Paul doesn't want any confusion between the kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness. Yes, he's annoyed and frustrated personally with her, but at the same time, it actually would be a detriment to your gospel witness to have this annoying voice following you around everywhere you go, shouting, proclaiming, these men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And so Paul cast this demon out of her. I'm not aware of a place in Scripture where Jesus only delivers from. He delivers to. That's true of the Exodus, is it not? He doesn't just take them out of Egypt. He takes them to the promised land. He doesn't just deliver you from sin. He delivers you to the kingdom of heaven. Here this picture is of this girl, this servant girl, delivered from this demon. Demon cast out of her, verse 18. She would then be delivered into the kingdom of light. Having been freed from the power of darkness, she's brought into the kingdom of light. This servant girl, freed from her demons, and now, quite honestly, of no use to her former masters, becomes the second participant, the second member of the core group that would become First Pres in Philippi. There's a third conversion in this passage. Paul and Silas, you heard the story, we don't need to recount it all. Paul and Silas were, were stripped and beaten because of what they had done. The masters, the owners of this slave girl got angry and frustrated. Their source of income was gone. Now they were going to have to actually, you know, work to make money. 
and they could no longer just live off of this girl's demon. And they got angry and frustrated, and so they created this stir against Paul and Silas, verse 19. They were stripped, beaten, and thrown into prison, and actually their feet fastened in the stocks. Now, if you've ever, if you've ever done the, the cute little stocks, like at Disney World or at the Colonial Village in Birmingham, you, know, they're, they're, you can kind of sit there with your arms through the holes, or you can sit on this chair and stick your feet through the holes, and you raise the bar and you kind of set it down on top of your feet, and you're not actually locked in place. In fact, you could get out anytime you want to. Just kind of raise up. Just kind of lift your legs and the board. They're, they're locked. And, and their feet aren't locked beside each other. They're actually pulled pretty far, uncomfortably far apart. And they're thrown deep into the inner prison. This is, this is maximum security. This is how dangerous Paul and Silas were viewed, mind you. The city is so convinced that these are dangerous criminals, that they threw them into the deep inner parts, the dark, damp, locked them in place, chained up, feet in the stocks, behind layers and layers of doors that would have been locked, gates closed and, and chained shut. That's how, that's how dangerous Paul and Silas were to the people in Philippi. But notice their reaction, verse 25. When things get a little difficult for you, when life doesn't go perhaps exactly as you thought it would, when you hit a speed bump, in your road of life. That sounds like a graduation speech somewhere. How do you react? Have you ever noticed how easy it is to get angry and depressed? Have you ever noticed how easy it is to take you know, some sucker punch that life throws at you and you, you shake your fist at God? You get angry at the world around you. You get angry at maybe your own sin or the sin of others. Paul and Silas are unjustly thrown into maximum security prison. And they were praying and singing hymns to God. Their commitment is to God's honor and glory, not to their own. Their commitment is also to the salvation of other people. See, they can't preach the gospel to anybody. There's no one to talk to. There's no one to tell about Christ. So they sang hymns. Because music carries the gospel message a little further in prison. Did you notice the tail end of verse 25? People were listening. 
the prisoners were listening to Paul and Silas praying and singing. There's a side note for us there. We who proclaim God's sovereignty, how we react when God's sovereignty takes us someplace we don't want to be, the watching world will notice that. Paul and Silas are praying and singing unjustly thrown into maximum security prison. And the prisoners heard them. And at midnight, I guess you can't sleep. In, even though it's dark, I guess you can't sleep in prison. I guess you can't sleep when your feet are in the stocks, kind of pulled way apart. I suppose that would make it difficult to fall. Midnight, I'm, I'm, I don't see midnight. I don't stay awake that late. At midnight, there's a, an earthquake. The prison shakes, the doors fall apart, the doors open, the locks binding Paul and Silas are are loosened, they they come apart, they open up. That's that's death for the jailer. The jailer's done. he's, He's in charge of a prison, all the doors are open, and he's convinced, he comes from his house, which probably would have been right next door, discovers he's felt the earthquake he wakes up he runs over the doors are all open there's no way the prisoners are still in there that's death for a roman soldier that's death for someone in charge of this prison he grabs his sword he's better to just fall on my own sword than to save and to save the the disgrace of public humiliation How would you have reacted? Paul suddenly says, wait, we're all here. Could you imagine the chills? Could you imagine his goosebumps? I mean, his life has just been spared. Because prisoners didn't get up and leave when all the doors were opened. All the locks were opened. They were completely free to leave. Paul says, wait, we're all still here, verse 28. No one's one's gone. No one's run away. Don't harm yourself. We're all here. The jailer calls for lights. Grab some torches. Get in there quick. I need to see if this is really true. I'd love to know what was going through his mind. Why Why are they still here? I wouldn't still be here. Why are they still here? I'd love to know his his thoughts, his reactions, that, that sense of, of relief. He knew something of the condition of his own heart. He knew the gospel message enough. He knew what Paul had done to the servant girl. He knew what Paul and Silas had been doing throughout the city. He knew enough that his only reaction was to ask the one question that mattered more than any other. The one question that you and I would love for people in this community to ask us. What must I do to be saved? He recognizes his need. He recognizes his own... that he's, got, he's missing something. He's lacking something. What must I do to be saved? 
You see Paul's answer. Paul's answer is clear and direct. Believe in the Lord Jesus. You will be saved. You and your household. The jailer was converted. His family becomes the third family unit to join First Presbyterian Church in Philippi. A wealthy single woman from Asia. A man Greek from Philippi overseeing this jail. Possibly a, a, a Roman soldier, possibly a freed slave granted some responsibility. A slave girl who had been demon-possessed. If you're going to pick a core group to start a church, I'm not sure those are the people we pick. But that's the core group. That's the group that, that becomes the church plant in Philippi. They have absolutely nothing in common except they trust in Christ. Except their hope in the Gospel. The only way these three people can all be in the same church together is because of Jesus. Let me make a couple of applications from this passage. It's maybe four or five. I forget how many I've got. First, let me make this observation. One of our core convictions, one of our core beliefs, one of our our core presuppositions here at Grace Covenant Church is that God is at work. We see very clearly God is at work in this passage. Paul wanted, verse 6, to go preach the gospel in Asia, but he was forbidden by the Holy Spirit. He wanted to go uh, towards Asia Minor, uh, but we're told, verse 10, that God had called them to preach there in Macedonia instead. You know, there's a, there's a, a philosophy out there called deism. It basically describes God as a cosmic clockmaker. You know, somebody that makes a clock, they put all the parts together, they get everything in its place, they wind it up, they check it and make sure it's running, and then they close the back of the clock and they set it on the counter and they never touch it again. There are people out there, Thomas Jefferson is a famous deist, who think that God simply created and then closed it up and never to interact with it again. This passage very clearly shows us, among thousands of others, that God is active and at work in His creation. The Spirit, the Holy Spirit, verse 6, prevented Paul from going to Asia. The Spirit of Jesus, verse 7, did not allow them to go into Bithynia. God is at work in Athens. God is at work in you and me. God is at work in this community. God is at work in this county. God is at work in His world. Bringing about His plans in His timing and in His way. 
first application, God is at work. Second application, a particular sort of instance of that, God is not just at work preventing, guiding, and directing Paul's steps. God is also at work in redeeming His people. God is sovereign in the salvation of His people. Did you notice in verse 14 the language that Luke writes? The Lord opened Lydia's heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. Apart from God's sovereign grace, changing her heart, taking her heart of stone and granting her a heart of flesh, apart from the Spirit at work, plowing the soil of her heart and conscience so that it might receive the Word and bear fruit, apart from God's grace at work in Lydia's life, she would have zero interest in Jesus. She would have remained in her sin. She believes because God grants her to believe. That, by the way, has implications for us. Does it not? Our greatest weapon in reaching the lost in this community is praying that the Spirit would go out ahead of us and work in the hearts and lives of those who have never trusted in Christ. God is sovereign in salvation. A third application, I want you to notice the means by which God saves people. Uh, We see it in verse 32. The jailer says, what must I do to be saved? The response, verse 31, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Okay, but what about Jesus? Okay, believe in Jesus. Who's Jesus? Where am I going to learn about Jesus? Where am I going to hear about who this Jesus person is? You mean Jesus, the guy that lives down there? Is there a particular Jesus you have in mind? You've got to give me more than that. Well, look at verse 32. When they spoke the word of the Lord to him. The means of salvation. The means of reaching the lost. The means by which men and women are brought to faith in Christ is the gospel of Christ. They proclaim the word of God to this jailer. And he responds in faith. Romans 10 tells us as much that faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. In other words, we at Grace Covenant Church are not interested in proclaiming Grace Covenant Church. We're not interested in proclaiming us. We're not even interested in proclaiming Clemson or Auburn or Alabama. We're interested in proclaiming the Word of God. That's why we talk about the whole gospel for the whole person through the whole city to the whole world. The gospel of Christ is the message, the means of salvation. A fourth application from this passage. Notice, and it's been a while, maybe soon we get to solve that problem. Did you notice covenant baptism in this passage? Lydia comes to faith in Christ. Her whole household receives the covenant sign of baptism. The jailer 
trusts in Christ, he and his household receive the covenant sign of baptism. If you've, if you've been through the Grace Covenant 101 class, uh, we've worked through this passage. One of, our, one of the passages we look at to defend and understand our idea of, of covenant baptism, of baptizing children of believers, is found right here in Acts 16. We see it modeled for us. Baptism doesn't save anybody, but both the Old and the New Testaments show us the entire household, children of believing parents receiving the covenant sign because the covenant promises are made to our children as well. Believe in the Lord Jesus. You will be saved, you and your household. A fifth application. Notice the response that both Lydia and the jailer gave after their conversion. The first thing we see them doing as believing Christians is practicing hospitality. Lydia's immediate response after she was baptized, her household was baptized, she urged us saying, if you've judged me to be faithful to the Lord, Come to my house and stay. A single woman inviting four men, at least, to come and stay in her house. She's committed to showing hospitality, to to caring for, to meeting the needs of these missionaries, of these travelers. They're not from there. They they can't just call up, you know, 1-800-HAMPTON-INN, is that the phone number, and get a reservation at the, the local Hampton Inn or call up the local Marriott or the Sheraton or wherever. They're not everywhere. They are dependent on somebody being kind enough and gracious enough to invite them into their home and care for them. And Lydia's immediate first response to her conversion, she trusts in Christ, she receives the covenant sign of baptism, she shows hospitality. The jailer did the exact same thing. As soon as he is converted, verse 33, he takes these men, Paul and Silas, into his house and feeds them and he cleans them up. He washed their wounds. He took care of them physically, but then gave them a place to stay, some food to eat. Neither one of them seemed to count the cost. Neither one of them seemed to say, well, this, was, this is going to be really, this is going to, be, this is going to demand my time. But neither one of them seemed to say anything about that. This could get expensive. I mean, these four men could eat a lot. I don't know how many burgers I'm going to feed them. Nobody seems to count the cost. Their concern was to show hospitality, to care for the needs of these men. Hospitality is commanded of us, by the, by the way, in Romans 12. We're commanded to, to show hospitality, to, to care for others, to meet their needs. This is one of the ways I think that we as Grace Covenant can reach this community is by practicing hospitality, by having folks in our homes regularly and frequently, uh, and loving them that way. 
lastly, if you're here this morning and you've never trusted in Christ for your salvation, if you're here this morning and, and, and you're kind of thinking to yourself, whoa, whoa, wait, back up. You lost me at what must I do to be saved. I'm still at that question, Jeff. Forget the rest of them. I still need the answer to that one. Well, your answer is the same as, as the one Paul gave to the jailer. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Trust in His righteousness because you have none. Trust in His obedience because you're disobedient. Trust in His blood to satisfy God's demands for your sin. And you will be saved. You and your household. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank You for the work that You are doing in this world. We thank You that we can say with confidence, because Scripture tells us with confidence that God is very much at work. We thank You for the hope that that gives us, knowing that we, in our sanctification, we are a work in progress. Father, we pray that we would see progress by Your grace. And that we would gladly, quickly, eagerly attribute any progress to Your grace. And not to our own efforts. Our own goodness. Father, we pray that You would not just see fit to work in Grace Covenant Church, but that You would also see fit to work through her. As we seek to gather and perfect the saints in Athens. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.